Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, we're almost getting to the point where we can just pre-record that section. The whole greeting and everything. <laughs> well, now you ruined it. Oh. Maybe we did. Or maybe well, that- we just reused this one. And people hear this conversation every week for the rest of time. That's that part in the middle of the song where the lead singer starts talking to the audience so you know that the whole thing wasn't pre-recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now I just have to cut that out and put it at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> anyway, what's going on with you? Uh, I have been... I, I, I wanted to do some playing with Unity, but I wanted to get better in a particular sort of way and so rather than like trying to add a feature to a game or one of the concepts i'm playing with um i really wanted to dig further into how you do unit testing in unity okay which on the surface sounds like one of the most boring topics on the planet but i'm slowly coming around to the perspective that it's probably as important if not more important than version control software Hmm. interesting um there's kind of two things so one is you're as you're working on the software you're constantly changing things and if you've got automated testing you can very quickly tell if something that you just changed in one place broke something in another place. And honestly, the more you reuse your code, like I've got this little code nugget that I use for eight different, on eight different objects, like the monsters use it for this and the players use it for this. And it's also attached to the, the weapon spawns and bonus point modifiers. Mm-hmm. All of those things use this same little centralized class. I could make a small change to that and it would only break the weapon drops. And even then, only visually. Like, I just wouldn't notice. Hmm. I mean, don't do not do that. I'm sorry, say that again? Don't, don't do that. Yeah, right. Um, so, um... In my other learning and things like that, in, in like if you recall a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, I was playing some other environments, learning Go, playing with some more JavaScript, um, digging around in graph databases. And in one of those, I caught a demo from somebody who was doing JavaScript programming with Node. And one of the challenges that you have when you're doing asynchronous programming is what they call callback hell. Mm-hmm. that's where you say go do this thing and whenever you're done come back and then go do this other thing and when you come back from that go and it starts looking like this really nasty tree of of wrapped if thens <laughs> like if then if then if then if then if then and you're like there's probably a better way to do this and this guy starts walking us through how to do it but he does it in like a 15-step process. Like you could jump directly to the end if you knew the entire path. But he's taking this in nice logical steps. 
Mm-hmm. And that was helpful. But the thing that was really interesting to me was that he started off the whole thing going, okay, we've got these unit tests set up. And so every single time he restructured his code, he could just kind of hit a little key command and it would go, boop, nope, everything still works exactly the same way. Okay, now let's completely refactor this. Boop, nope, still works exactly the same way. No functional changes. That's freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I'm finding more and more as I'm as I'm getting older code bases. You know, it doesn't necessarily make sense in your first day. But by day six, <laughs> you're probably going to want it. And certainly by month six. Or three years into a large code base that's supporting a database analysis tool. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, and like I in my day job product, I do have some unit testing, but it's on some relatively small nodules. Little small modules of the code that were really easy to set up testing for. But I started digging into it on Unity, just kind of see how it works and, and what's going on. Um, and I've got some links that I'll hand you for the show notes, um, including a link back to that Node video. Like, even if you don't care about Node, you can just watch this and watch this guy make massive changes to his code and just, think, nope, still the same. Okay. Still the same. Um, and honestly, as I started playing with it, I realized that it it, it doesn't take that long if you know what you're doing. Well, that grows me. <laughs> well, the first time is horrible. Like, you remember how many hoops you had to jump through the first time you started trying to play with version control on a project? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, well, so I'm going to make a repository. And, like, just making a repository takes 10 minutes because you're checking three sources of documentation because none of it makes sense. And for six months, every time I checked out a repository, I ended up getting, like, another folder deeper. So at one point I had like four parent folders before uh-huh. you actually got to the uh, the content of the repo. Uh, one of the ones that I did was anytime I needed to do a merge or a significant rollback, I would first zip the entire folder so that I could fix it if I messed something up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so I would just unzip that and stick it back in the same spot and the, the GUI repository browser would go, nope, same archive, same place, everything's fine. Um, so, but once I started playing with it, I started seeing that, that once I've built the basic skills, adding these unit tests is not exceptionally complicated. Um, but that assumes that you know how first, so you have to do that pain. You have to do the painful part and then you can start taking advantage of it. Um, so carrying on with the version control simile, now you do it even for tiny projects, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you're just gonna, you're just going to test something out, and you're not sure if you're really going to do anything with it. But you make a new project, and then immediately start a repository, probably connected to GitHub, just so you've got all just because it's easier to do it that way now than to not do it. Yeah. And the advantages are so big that even on a small project, it'll be worthwhile. And that's what I'm starting to get for this kind of testing. Um, so I then hunted down a video for how to do it in Unity. And the first video that I came across is a little weird because they were actually using F-sharp rather than C-sharp. So there's a couple of spots where the syntax is a little funky. But 
it gave me a ton of information about the general flow, how it works, what the interface pieces kind of look like, so that I'd know if I was on the right track. Because this is one of those spots where the Unity documentation has a lot of detail, but very little step one, do this. Step mm-hmm. two, do this. Um, so, and the other thing that the video did is as he started going, he started going kind of faster and faster, kind of assuming that you understood what he talked about earlier, which was stretching it for me. But some of the things that he started referencing were really, really cool concepts. I'm like, okay, making notes, making notes, going to have to go hunt that down. Um, For example, you are trying to test how a spawner works. You know, a thing that randomly places things around the board. And normally if I was breaking that up to make it easier to test, I'd make a subroutine that took the position you wanted to spawn to. And then I'd call that and make sure that an object had showed up there. Like, that's that's how I would set that up. Mm-hmm. His answer used a technique called substitution that tells um, Unity, next time you ask for a random number, give them this. <laughs> and so he could call a 10-line function that had a random number call in the middle of it and know exactly what number that was going to generate without dirtying up his main code with weird, you know, oh, if we're doing a test, then just give it this number. Or, oh, no, now I have to refactor this because there's no other way to do the testing. Hmm. And so I started digging into dummy objects and test stubs and substitutes. And there's a fun one for unity called always max random number which allows you to like make sure that that like you always hit so swing a sword it hits swing a sword it hits and you can make sure that like i hit the thing and damage was done and this guy's health went down and this guy's experience went up and all of those things happened every single time somebody swings the sword and hits nice. yay um so then found a Unity documentation blog thingy called Unit Testing, or I'm sorry, Unit Testing at the Speed of Light with Unity Test Tools. It has a ton of details about the specific elements. Like this is what a mock is and how it works. And this is a dummy object. And this is a test stub. Um, and then like shows you, okay, here's, here's a chunk of code. Here is how we would test it using what you've learned so far, but there's a better way using this mock object. And here's how that works. And all of that is fantastic if you know actually how to make unit tests in Unity and run them, which isn't substantively covered in that section. Um, What's a little goofy about digging into this that makes it worse is that um, Unity has... or these Unity test tools used to be in the asset store. Hmm. So if you do a Google search for unit testing Unity 3D, the first eight or 10 Google results are linking to stuff that all says, hey, go download these from the store. It's down at link, you know, 9, 10, 11 that says, 
hey, by the way, it's not in the store anymore. It's actually in the application built in. Just do this instead. Um, but so what's cool is you can just make a new script, put it in a folder. I, I called mine tests. And there's one of those preprocessor directives, the little square bracket mm-hmm. things before a function. It just goes unit test or unity test. Um, it says unity test. And unity will find that function and automatically run it for you. If so you, you say do the tests. So you put that above the actual function and part of your code base, or is that you put that where the unit test is? That goes up where the unit test is. Okay. So for example, I have my, in my clown game, I had a little class that is just my clamp lateral velocity so that I could keep the player from sliding based upon friction with the ground. It would require getting hit by a block or hit by a clown to get pushed. Mm -hmm. So that is called clamp lateral velocity. So I made a separate script called clamp lateral velocity test. And in that I have four major functions, each of which is prefaced with square brackets unity test. And so there's no real direct connection between this script and the code that it tests. But basically this code just says, oh, okay, so I want to make an object, give it this clamp lateral velocity component, script component, and then see if its lateral velocity changes. Hmm. And so I do literally that. I make a new game object, attach a rigid body, attach my clamp lateral velocity script component, then I apply a lateral force to it, wait one frame, and see if it still has any lateral velocity. And it has no lateral velocity. So this test passes. Hmm. And the thing is, the code here is basically pretty general. So anything that I do inside this clamp lateral velocity, like I'm not calling any functions in clamp lateral velocity. I'm just attaching the component, applying a force, and seeing if the game object still has this thing. So as long as I don't rename clamp lateral velocity, this will just continue working. Not just the code, but the test itself. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff there, like in the in the video and then in the blog post that had the details that were showing how you can isolate chunks of code like they were showing the the mock stuff and stubs and dummy objects were things like oh okay so i want to test to make sure that when i shoot an enemy ship it dies okay that means that i need to make a ship and then give it a weapon and then give it ammunition and then um 
make an enemy ship and give it health and give it shields and whatever because that's like that's how complex the object is. Like I had to define all these things to create one of these objects. <clears throat> and what they said was, well, if we're really just testing that if we hit a thing of this type, it responds in this particular way, make a a dummy game object that just has like two properties. Like one point of health and a dead flag. But to the code outside, it totally looks like a full enemy ship. Because we're not testing any of the other components. We're just making sure that when I fire and hit a thing, I get credit. So are you, are you making the game object in code or are you actually storing that in your project? Um, there are options for both of them. In most cases, these are in code. Okay. Yeah. So those good. objects would be defined in the testing code outside your application or outside yeah. the stuff that normally runs. Um, and then my guess is the that Unity test preprocessor thing will also pull it out when it does the final build. Oh, okay, yeah. So Maybe you can write just... all this code. You can layer as much stuff in those unit tests as you want, and it's not going to end up impacting the final performance. Or maybe you're supposed to keep the unit test in one of those special folders, like the editor folder, or maybe the testing folder itself. Things like yeah, that I, just don't get included. I haven't yet seen anything that suggests that that's the case. Um, but then again, you're tagging literally every single function. And there's nothing in your program that calls those functions. You know what I mean? Like when you start mm -hmm. the scene, nothing calls any of the tests. It's the editor itself that calls the tests. Mm -hmm. So in a full compilation, it probably shouldn't include that code anyway. It's not called by anything. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm a little far afield there. Um, so yeah, I, I learned a ton reading through that, that stuff, but I had to get to the point where I could even understand what the heck they were talking about. I have not gotten to that point yet. No, but so. you can get there. <laughs> Watch these three videos and it'll start to make sense. Yeah. Send them um, to me and I'll uh, put them in the show notes. Yeah. Although this will not, this probably won't be a priority for me right now, but it's definitely something I want to learn. It's, it's one of those, like, it, I see a potential rabbit hole here. And, yeah. And Joe, uh, you know, urgently trying to make money. Uh -huh. It's uh, probably not a good rabbit hole for me to spend time on. There is that. The flip side is that by the time that you realize that you really, really, really needed unit testing... It's almost an insurmountable obstacle to try and go back after the fact and put it in. Yeah. Like, you'd have to refactor so much code just to get the tests set up and properly isolated that you kind of get to do without it. Um, there were some guys that I was, uh, that I caught a presentation from many years ago outside Unity. They were doing Objective C development. And they had decided that on this project, both of them, they were working as a team, were going to learn unit testing as well. Mm -hmm. And by the time they were done, they had like 17,000 unit tests. 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested in writing that much code. I mean, keep in mind, every project I've done so far in Unity has cool. been less than 5% of the time on the project has been involving code. Mm -hmm. It's all visual and audio. That's where I'm spending most of the time is making things look the way I want and sound the way I want and then the interactions. And like, mm -hmm. there's so much, so much has already been solved in code. I, I'm just not writing that much original code. It's like, okay, how do I do this? Okay, here's 500 answers on Stack Overflow on how to do this. Like, it just doesn't take, I, I'm not one of those programmers who insists on writing everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. No, no. Um the uh the one of the tricks here is that if you set this up properly like i had that one where i things kept falling through the ground mm -hmm. because the um the tag on the particular object was wrong or whatever and so it wasn't generating collisions um and i could actually write a test for that so that if i ever mess that up again even though that's in GUI, not in code, the code would make sure that the settings that I had made in the GUI were correct. That if they fell out of alignment for any reason, like in order for all of this code to work, the tag on this particular, on the player has to be like player one. If I make it player two, everything breaks. Mm -hmm. Well, it would notice that that GUI change got made even if it's two years later. And I don't remember why the original thing was there, but it would confirm that I never stepped out of that alignment. So you can actually write the code to confirm that your GUI stuff is set up right. Yeah. So like I said, this is one of those things like, I, I understand the importance of it academically. Practically speaking, it's, it's one of those things that I will recognize the importance of after I learn it. But right uh -huh. now, it's just... Yeah, it's it's hard for me to justify spending a lot of time on something like this. Mm -hmm. um, just like when I was, when I went from one filemaker company to another and really learned a lot more about testing scripts and particularly writing error checking and error handling into scripts and filemaker for the first time, I was real resistant to that at first. And mm -hmm. my boss basically, you know, gave me a week to refactor an entire code base, and. Uh, didn't you know threaten to fire me or anything but he was like this is what you're working on this week we're going to take the other stuff off your plate and you're going to work on this until you understand these things and it becomes just how you write scripts yeah. from here on forward and it was a you know a pain in the butt but it was in the long run a positive experience and i think this is going to be one of those things where like i'm not going to do it until i absolutely have to do it and then mm -hmm. i'll hate the joe that didn't do it in all those other projects <laughs> so in my uh my day business program one of the things that i wrote this for was something that would look for particular kinds of strings in other strings it's just like a, a simple thing in in filemaker terms it's looking for global variables so there's a particular nomenclature that it would use to set off a global variable and so what i could do is i could write then 30 test cases for all the different kinds of ways that a global variable can hide in a chunk of code. And it's just strings. Just pass this string and did it find the global variable? Did it find the right number of global variables? Did it get the entire global variable name? Mm -hmm. And then I could just throw 30 different test cases at this thing. 
And then as I was modifying it, I could make sure that no change that I made broke that. So you can even use this on just one tiny little piece. It doesn't have to be universal. Yeah. So just, I'm not saying that you should do it now. I'm saying keep it in mind if you've got some weird, nasty little piece that you know you're going to mess up. You can learn just enough unit testing to get through that part yeah. and not have to worry about breaking it. Yeah, I mean, currently what I'm doing, it may be sloppy, but it works for me. It's just, it's it's more, it's closer to how I I test for errors in FileMaker the way I'm doing it in Unity. It's just, you know, testing is a component available, is a component null, is a condition meeting a certain way. And mm -hmm. if not, just error out a debug log like this and just write a little note to myself like this is what is expected here and didn't happen. Yep. And that, that seems to cover just about everything so far. And like I said, Unity development is a lot like Xcode development to me. Of it, You know, it's a game of get rid of the red dots. <laughs> yeah. Get rid of the red dots, get rid of the yellow dots. There's... I'll talk about it in a second, but I tried an asset package last week that had thousands of yellow dots, and I was very disappointed. Yeah. Um, and let me just take a moment and distinguish between good, solid, fault-tolerant code and code that doesn't generate the wrong faults. Yeah. It's, it's like, yes, your code will not crash when it bumps into the bad case. But I've written things where what the program started doing was throwing the bad case a thousand times a second. Because something else was calling the thing wrong. And I didn't catch it. And so just suddenly, bullets stop happening. We don't have bullets anymore. All gone. Oh. Oh. Okay. Now, it's totally valid. Program didn't crash. Everything's happy and healthy because... The bullets didn't have the right properties, and so they stopped appearing. That's fault-tolerant code. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't work. So it's a different kind of testing. And then you get into like integration testing and things like that, which some of this Unity stuff crosses the line. Um, but that's a much larger topic, and I'm going to need to get you into the first step of testing before we can really have that conversation. Yeah. I'll get you there. It won't be next week. Yeah. No. I'm busy this week. Yeah, it'll be fine. So speaking of what you are working on, what you got going on? So I've been working on that bowling demo that we talked about last week. And uh, this was a project that started out as a Joe knock something out to get in the portfolio. Um, and so I limited myself to 30 hours on it. I spent just under that i think it was like 29.64 hours last week and that includes the saturday previously of the six hours of prototyping um interesting to me anyway is 17 out of that 29 hours was spent on audio so there was a huge area in unity for me that I just hadn't explored very much and it took a lot of time um just trying to learn the basics, experiment, try different things um, along the way. So it was a big chunk of the time. So I didn't get as far in, in game mechanics as I would have liked to, but I know a lot more about audio now. So <laughs> there's that. Um, so before the audio stuff, the you know I made some changes to 
you know, I remodeled a bunch of stuff in Pro Builder. I started using physics materials more, um, particularly learning how to use physics materials in conjunction with other phys physics materials. So making the bowling ball very slippery and the portion of the lane that needs to be slippery very slippery and having those things kind of average together and make a super slick object allows me to get that that kind of that feeling when you throw a bowling ball and you see it kind of spin the wrong way or what looks like the wrong way for the first half of the lane or so that's when it's it's kind of gliding on the oil but its momentum is still turning it but it, it looks like it's turning the wrong way and then it, when it runs out of the oil pattern back onto a uh, regular wood floor it kind of starts rolling under its own momentum so i was able to mimic that effect and it looks pretty awesome actually it's actually really satisfying the first time i got it to work um it took me a while you know i guess i'm just kind of an idiot sometimes and i'm trying to figure out like the first first thing i did to put the slippery material on the lane was just to put another plane on top of it but even mm -hmm. just being a tiny bit above it i was still noticing that the ball was round enough and the collisions are accurate enough that it would kind of like judder a little bit and i like i could it was enough for me to see it and be annoyed by it so i'm like okay okay the 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 physics material can't be on a separate object it has to be on the lane itself gonna have one continuous surface so then i realized like the physics material are attached to the collider on the object. They're not the, its own component or anything. So I just added another collider to the lane and resized it and offset it to just the first half of the lane. So half, so there's like, there's two colliders on the lane, one that handles regular collisions that keep the ball on there entirely. And the other one is about just over half the length of the lane, just covers the first half. And that's the one that has the phys the uh, physics material in it. So just kind of a weird, like I did, I never would have guessed that on my own, but <laughs> eventually got to it just from like poking around. So audio in Unity is not as easy as it sounds. Funny, because it, it didn't really sound easy to me at all. I've been, I've been waiting a week to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't get your terrible pun. You thought criminal. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, actually, it is fairly simple once I learned all the various pieces. So I worked <laughs> through that uh, chapter seven that you mentioned from the book that I did last fall, the Ray Winderlich book. And remember what they were talking about there. The audio or the sound manager design pattern that they were using there didn't really work for me because I want my sounds attached to objects and I want that those objects to emit sound from where they are as much as possible. And their design pattern involves much more, obviously because they weren't working on VR in that one, um, that just involved game objects calling the sound manager to play a sound, which is, you know, a pretty simple way of doing it, but didn't quite work for me. Um, so what I did is kind of adapt that to my own needs of like, currently in the game there is kind of a sound manager object that plays music just right now just some sample music on a loop um, and then there is audio on the bowling balls and the pins and uh, so each so there's an audio listener attached to the vr camera that's what hears sound and there's audio sources in unity and they are what emit sound 
So to play a ball, to play the sound of the ball hitting the floor on the ball, you attach an audio source to the ball. And then wherever that is in relation to the audio listener, you kind of get that spatial effect. Um, let me caveat all of this that I'm not using any of the special spatialized audio stuff yet. There's one from Steam, there's one from Oculus, and there's one from Microsoft. I played around with the one from Steam, but I haven't actually put it in my product in my project yet because it's in beta, so I'm not sure I want to. But uh, just the way that Unity handles sound, it's not as super realistic as the spatial stuff. Like it's not binaural and like offsetting sounds based on the angle of the headset and stuff like that. But it's, it's good enough for what I'm doing right now. So the other tricky part was how to, how do I play a sound continuously during a collision? And I tried a couple of things and what ended up working for me is to like, you know, rolling the ball down the lane. I wanted that to play a sound. And when you have an audio source on an object, you can set it to loop when it plays a sound. So the simplest thing to do was just to create some kind of rolling sound effect and loop that. So when the collision starts, you can start that sound effect. And then when the collision stops, you just stop that loop. And you can stop it at the end of the loop if you want to have it kind of like fade away, or you can just stop it abruptly. The that That's what I ended up using. That's not the first thing I did. First thing <laughs> I did was... Uh, the basically the update version of like during collision play sound we just you know put the headset on put the headphones on hit play <laughs> and i heard thousands of sounds <laughs> playing over each other <laughs> that was not pleasant so i'm currently using a a third party asset called uh, fizz sound physics sounds and it was like a 10 dollar asset pack that I found that mimics a lot of basically like it created it, it creates sliding effects like you, you you drag in your sound clips and audio sources and uh, it handles like collision based on velocity and movement of the object things like that it kind of has some convenience functions to make that a little bit easier I think I'm actually just going to rip that off because I learned a little bit more over the weekend about how the stuff works and I Okay, now I know how to do these things myself. I don't really need a, a third-party thing. But it, it was pretty cool what it does. I will say that the demo scene that comes with it, the it just doesn't do the product justice. It's actually really sophisticated what it can do. And I think the, the developer who released it is kind of selling themselves short. If they make some more interesting demos, I think they'll have a more viable product. But the other thing that's... That, uh, you have to be careful of or just have to be aware of like the the bowling ball itself has two distinct sounds one for when it impacts something particularly the floor and one when it is rolling and the impact sound shouldn't loop and the rolling sound should <laughs> and they need to kind of play at the same time so the easiest way to deal with that rather than try to switch out sound clips which can actually be kind of nasty in memory um, it's just to attach two audio sources to the ball, one for non-looping sounds for the impact sounds and one for looping sounds for the rolls. And then the, so I was able to do that, just attach two game objects to that. In order to reference them by script, you can, 
you can just you know use get components audio sources and kind of loop through them and assign them to variables that way or i just did the the kludge easy way which was to make two public audio source variables and just drag them in to the script attached to the ball and reference them that way because the audio sources don't actually have their own unique names or identifiers so without that you're just going to have to you know loop through them and try to figure out which one is which like is this one set to loop you know or always set the first one to loop and the second one not to something like that for me it was just easier to drag them in that way and just know that i'm calling the right one and then from there you've got a ton of methods and properties that you can call on the audio source to change you know the volume or the pitch of something that's playing um so i can kind of get that doppler effect on something that's moving very fast things like that you can do a lot with it the one thing i'm not super satisfied with yet is the the impact sounds on the pins hitting each other so when the ball hits the pins they the pins are handling their own sound effects and they're testing to say it was i hit by a ball or was i hit by a pin and the sound of them each being hit by the ball sounds just about right but hitting each other i need to really play with that and how how i'm going to calculate like the pitch and the volume of those as you know sometimes they're just like barely touching each other as like mm -hmm. they're kind of spinning on their center of gravity and maybe knock over another pin so i need to kind of account for that or maybe need is too strong a word <laughs> i doubt anybody cares but me especially once you throw the the uh, background music on top but <laughs> let's just say this is one of those rabbit holes that was kind of fun to go down yeah um isn't the uh one of the elements of the collision like a vector of force mm -hmm. yeah okay particularly the what the what the physics uh, system was using you know no i'm just thinking one of the things i read over the weekend they were using the magnitude of the collision which mm -hmm. i read something else for the weekend that said don't use the magnitude because that does a square root calculation so use this other function that gives you the same result but doesn't do a square root calculation oh but yeah okay um, yeah just read a weird blog post from like two or three years ago about unity optimization it had a ton of really useful stuff in it hmm. so yeah it's audio is really cool um the other thing that i spent entirely too much time on was music I started the week using Helm, which I think we mentioned on the, on the podcast before, and I pulled it out for now. I may put it back. I'm not sure. But Helm is basically a synthesizer in Unity, and there's the Helm desktop app where you can kind of go and customize your instruments, save them to a, a file type, and then import them into your Unity file to use. And then from there, it's just like use. It's, it's almost like using GarageBand or FL Studio. You've got a piano rolled and you can define tones and sounds you can call it from scripts so like the all the audio that i wrote during the beginning of the week was done in helm where i just had like a constant tone playing as the bowling ball rolling effect and i had a thud sound and things like that i may put that stuff back in because it has some pretty cool sounds but when i was trying to work with that and the fizz sound api they were kind of working over each other but since i'm going to pull that out i may kind of put these tones back in that kind of gives me the ability to match the sound effects closer to the music and kind of 
at runtime change out the sound effects based on what music is playing. So I could kind of do some cool stuff that way, but that's a much more complicated project. So, <laughs> you know, it's not on the top of my list. Version two. Yeah. The other thing is working with music itself. And I found some pretty cool stuff in the asset store. There's a ton of royalty free stuff. There's a ton of like inexpensive and licensable stuff out there that I think would be suitable. Um, one of the coolest things I tried that I was really disappointed in, but is a really cool concept is, I don't even remember the name of it, but it was this music pack from the asset store where the developer created basically trigger volumes or trigger planes is more like it, where you would start a scene, it's playing just the first track. So each one of these is made up of like nine tracks that loop together and kind of work together to create the entire song. And as you pass through each plane, the next uh, loop triggers and starts and become, you know, gets added to the first one. Um, and it's smart enough to not just add it randomly, but to wait for the current like musical phrase to end before and kind of play them together going forward. It was really cool. And then I looked under the hood and there were like 1200 floating point um, warning dialogues. He was just doing a ton <laughs> of floating point comparison. I was like, I don't, even, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine, Joe. I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. I, it probably is. I'm, I don't want that in my project. Yeah. So, delete. <laughs> if nothing else, it will fill your console. Yeah, it was pretty ugly. So... I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at. The I've exhausted the time I said I was going to spend on the project at 30 hours. Uh, I think I'm going to keep working on it because COG is this weekend, um, not last weekend, like I initially thought for some reason. Um, so I'm going to try to wrap up some stuff this week and have a full working demo to show off and see what people think. Um, there's some other experienced developers there. There's some. There's just a whole bunch of people there that I could get some feedback on and see if they think this is a good idea, if it's silly. I've showed it to a couple other people um, outside of my VR and developer circle, and they all like it, but they all like me, so it's hard to tell if it's being <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I need some more critical feedback. Um, in terms of actual gameplay, I think I'm going a completely different direction than anything we've talked about on the show first, but I want to actually like test out that gameplay and make sure it's as fun as I think it's going to be before we go into it. So I should have something more interesting to talk about with it next week. Looking forward to it. So at the, towards the end of last week, we, we assigned homework or I assigned homework and then Dave didn't do the homework because he hates the podcast and hates our listeners and he's a bad man. That's absolutely correct. Um, or more likely, he just forgot. That's so, also absolutely correct. So that, that homework was the Unity keynote at GDC, which was close to two hours long. And so we're not going to go into it in a ton of detail. I'm just going to go over my notes real quick um, and kind of save Dave two hours of his life because it was kind of boring, honestly. I, I, was, I was expecting it to be more exciting, but it was just kind of... Meh. There's some cool stuff in there, but for the most part, I ended up, you know, fidgeting a lot and finding out something else to do. 
But uh, there's some pretty cool stuff on there. Unity is posting sessions all over the internet. There's a bunch of stuff on YouTube that each one of these topics goes into more detail. Um, something that caught my that I, I caught in my notes just because it got a lot of applause is nested, nested prefabs. So prefabs inside of prefabs, which doesn't really work that well now. It doesn't really work at all now. And I found that out the hard way in a couple of cases where, you know, I've made a game object out of like, say I'm assembling it out of Unity primitives and I make a body and give it a material and a collider, whatever. And then I make some arms and a head and a leg and I give them materials. But at one point I save the body out as a game object or as a prefab. And then mm-hmm. each of the other objects has a prefab. And then I save the entire thing out as a prefab. And then I go to make a change to the body. Maybe I'm gonna reposition the collider. So I select the the whole shebang, the whole parent game object, and I edit that's that body and apply to prefab. It didn't apply to the prefab of the body independently. It only applied to the collection as a whole. So things like that just don't quite work now. So supposedly nested prefabs are going to be a thing. It got a really big, loud round of applause. So I'm guessing a lot of developers run into this pretty pretty frequently. So um, something that was really cool. It was less technical, but I really like this from a business standpoint. Is Unity is they're publishing a lot of versions. They're publishing three versions a year, and it can be a little tough to keep up with, especially if you're supporting multiple projects or, you know, like I intend to do, having multiple customers with different projects over time. Um, Trying to keep everybody up to date could be a pain or trying to decide which versions to update to and which ones to skip could be a pain. So Unity made that a little bit easier by announcing a long-term support version. And so basically what they're going to do is every year they're going to do three versions. The point three version of that year will receive two years of continuous patches and security updates without getting new features. So that'll be kind of your stable version that you can just plan on. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Um, so I think it takes effect as of 27.3, but... I, I'm not 100% on that, but I think they're starting it as of, you know, now-ish. But I just thought that was a cool way of approaching that, of like, you know, get to the point three release on your project and stay there for a couple of years and have a stable code base. So they spent a ton of time talking about the new rendering pipelines, the scriptable rendering pipelines, the, the heavy-duty one and the lightweight one. They had some really cool demos for both of them. Most of it was over my head especially the heavyweight one. Um, it's hard. It's going to be really hard for any other game engine to say that we make stuff that looks better than Unity um, after seeing what they demoed there. like It's some pretty incredible stuff. Nothing that we're going to be able to do in VR anytime soon. <laughs> uh, the lightweight scriptable pipeline renderer thingy that'll be something that we can use they even have a vr template of that in the beta versions um and it's it just it makes rendering a hell of a lot faster and a lot easier to use but it comes at a cost of like it has to convert all your shaders so if you're using stuff in the asset stores you've got to convert that stuff make sure you're not messing stuff up and so it's not without 
problems. Um, it's all still beta too, so I'm not touching any of it. And then, go ahead. Did they talk at all about the uh, incremental compiler? Um, they did, and I kind of, I think that's what I glazed over and Googled something and sent you a link and said, hey, you should explain this. Gotcha. But yeah, they are supporting other versions of C-sharp, and they're kind of reaching for a stabilized version later this year. But basically all I took from it was I need to change a drop-down menu in my settings in the editor <laughs> somewhere at some point. Yeah. Um, I, I'm looking forward to the incremental compiler. Um, so basically as it's compiling 50 different source files, the current way that it compiles is it starts at the beginning and compiles everything as it goes along until it builds the end product and then you're ready to go. An incremental compiler saves little like snapshots along the way. And so if you don't change a particular file, it can look at the tree and go, I can skip the first 80% of compilation because I've already done it and just pick up at this point and keep going. And so I just recompile the one source file and then anything that depends upon it right up the chain. And so it basically does like a 80 or 90% reduction in compile times, hmm. which is one of my biggest weight points when doing Unity development is yeah. like, I just updated this code how quickly before Unity realizes that I've added public variables and unit tests and things like that. Like all of that requires it doing the compilation. Like, okay, now we're ready for you to go. Mm -hmm. That'll become a lot faster. Not just a little faster, but a lot faster. Yeah, particularly it's like save file in Visual Studio, switch to Unity, click on game object, click on game object again. Come on, <laughs> click off game object, click on game object. Okay, there it is. Like, yes. That's 50 yes. times a day. That that should reduce in how often and how badly by a huge margin once this gets out there and really integrated. It's a 2018 version feature cool. at some point. So another theme that Unity is kind of developing, at one point towards the end of the keynote, they had their one of their original founders and their, I think, chief technical officer who is a C-level employee and a huge nerd and engineer. Um, and he came out and said a bunch of really complicated things that were over my head. But the, one of the themes that he was trying to drill home is they're, they're moving to this philosophy of performance by default. So really optimizing Unity before it even gets to us in certain ways. So kind of like taking out a lot of the, the common things that trip people up and just making those things optimized before they even get to us. One of the biggest areas that they're doing that with is the, the new entity component system and the job system that is in, I guess, pre-release, beta, early, alpha, whatever you want to call it. You can take a look at it now, but it's not actually built into the Unity 2018.1 beta. It's, it's a, a separate build you have to go download if you want to try it out. But... I've got that on my list to read more about, but it sounds really cool from what I've learned so far, which isn't much, but essentially <laughs> these kind of replace game objects 
to some extent. There's a way to like replace game objects entirely and use this new system or use it in conjunction with game objects because not everything is implemented yet. But I read a blog post uh, yesterday of somebody just made like a, I think he took one of the common uh, Unity tech demos, like the space shooter, one of their tutorial files and can try to convert it to the, the new system. And it's pretty cool what it can do. So basically you give, from what I was able to capture from this is rather than having a game object full of components, you have one of these new things. I forget exactly what they're called. But they, they also have components, but they're a different type of components. And rather than writing code in each one of those components, you, you give these things to components. Maybe you dump a thousand of these things into your scene and you have a manager object that is UA, using kind of a query language to gather up all of those and run functions on them as a whole. Um, so Unity demoed this a little bit last summer and I watched one of their videos then. And one of the, the demo they had was like two opposing armies with thousands and thousands of game objects on each side, all running AI calculations, like charging towards each other, but avoiding friendly fire. And like, it was pretty sophisticated. So this is all what that system enables. So needless to say that that talk is on my to-do list this week. I'll post a link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to watch it because it looks pretty interesting. Please. So that's it for the Unity talk. Let's talk about something more interesting. Let's. So that's, uh, we're about 53 minutes in. If you haven't read Ready Player One or seen the movie and seen the movie, then stop listening to the podcast now. Super huge spoiler warning. Go away. We're going to talk about this movie ad nauseum. <laughs> and I don't want to ruin anything for anybody. Mm -hmm. So pause Stop. it. Come back later. Because you'll want to hear it later, but not now. Huge spoiler warning. Spoiler. Okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we went to see, we got invited to the Columbus Mixer, Ready Player One Mixer with a bunch of other techies and VR people and game developers and just this big event. Um, we went to that on Thursday night. It was a, you know, an event before the movie with, you know, people standing around talking, that type of thing. And then there was a movie, and then there was a question and answer session with one of the guys from Industrial Light and Magic afterwards. And uh, so, yeah, we've seen the movie. Um, it was kind of a pain to get Dave to leave his house and go to a movie theater. But <laughs> it was possible. It's, it's not the leaving my house that's really the hard part. It's the getting me into a movie theater. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of movie theaters, but I did want to see this one on the big screen. And, uh, so yeah, um, since then I've kind of avoided the internet on it. I didn't really want to hear other people's opinions until we had a chance to talk about it now. So I'm curious, uh, let's just start, like, what did you think of the movie in general? And, and we'll kind of go from there. Um, my, my basic summary is fun, lighthearted movie bears little specific resemblance to the book yeah in either overall details or the references that everybody loved so much um 
but the references that were substituted were basically of equivalent quality. A little less geeky, or yeah, a little less geeky, a little bit more fun. But there's still just as many, if not more, references in the movie than in the book. Yeah. So as far as that went, I was having fun. I gave it a pass on the differences because a there was no I mean nothing ever faithfully reproduces something in a book. Yeah. Um and I just I went into it going, okay, I'm just I'm just going to have fun with this and I totally had fun with it. And that was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mostly agree. Um I I expected the references to be a lot different because this is a Warner Brothers film and the book just referenced stuff owned and and licensable from dozens of companies and I just knew that they were not going to be able to faithfully do that. Like, they even talked about it in the after session of the movie. They they talked they touched on some of the licensing issues and some of the stuff that they thought were they were going to be able to use and you know maybe fell apart at the last minute. Somebody wanted too much money or just a contract couldn't get signed things like that. So there's actually like huge portions of the movie that we'll never see, not even in like bonus reels and stuff because they just couldn't get the licensing for it. Yeah. Um, which is that's got to be a tough design constraint when you're working on a product of like <laughs> here's what here's what the feature list calls for we have to make this oh but legally we can't now that, now i need the blu-ray and i want to watch the trailer and see if the legal department was bigger than the animation department mm-hmm. that's this is maybe the first vr-ish movie computer generated movie that could possibly make that happen so yeah i knew it i knew it was going to be a much different movie than the book just because of the licensing thing i also want to caveat this that i while i like this book i it's not i'm not a diehard fan of this i know a lot of mm-hmm. people are way more into this and they're going to tear this apart much more than i am for me it was a fun book but it wasn't it's not going to make like my top 10 list of favorite books or make it to my desert island list or anything like that and it certainly wasn't a religious experience no no, things like Stranger in a Strange Land are the type of stuff that you know really hit home for me. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a book I'm going to have to reread every year for the rest of my life. And th- you know, this was not one of those books. This was like, huh, that's fun. You know, it's fun <laughs> to talk about. Yeah. Um, what I didn't expect, while I expected huge changes in the references and stuff like that, I didn't expect them to basically change the entire contest. <laughs> So all three of the like challenges to get to the various keys were completely different, and they kind of weren't as cool. Like they looked better on the big screen, mm-hmm. probably than what they did in the book. Although I still think the rush thing would have been amazing. <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason, they didn't. They didn't do the rush scene. They didn't do the Dungeons and Dragon thing. So it's something that you mentioned after the movie, which I tend to agree with, and you can state better than me, but. You mentioned that just like the challenges were less intellectual and more more of just kind of like forcing your way to a solution. Yeah, um, they were they were action based or security by obscurity, mm-hmm. not you have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the '80s and all of Halliday's favorite things in order to even have a chance to do any of this. Yeah, so that part was a, that was a lot different. They also, they definitely condensed the world of this movie a bit. 
So in the book, it takes place over a couple of cities, and there's a couple of big trips. And in this one, everything was in Columbus. So everyone just happened to be nearby in one city as opposed to all over the world. Um, so that was kind of weird. Like, yeah, if, if you have the option, don't see this movie in Columbus. <laughs> because if you see the movie in Columbus, you get to deal with the, the gasps and chatters of people going, ooh, hey, I recognize that scene, and I work near there, and ooh, that's my building. No. <laughs> Dave, Go see it in Indianapolis where nobody cares about the skyline. Dave was much more annoyed about this than I was. But. Well, that's why I, I mean, it's the primary reason I hate theaters. Yeah. I think there was I, at least twice where I, like, hit you on the shoulder and pointed at something. So. Yeah. Um, I, uh, but, but as long as you do it silently, I, I'm less concerned. It's, it's the talking. I'd spend four times as much for a movie ticket if they locked ball gags on people as they walked. <laughs> oh, God. That's a very different kind of theater if you can get that done. <laughs> well, you know, if it keeps other people away, I'm okay with it. Um... But yes, it might have a different audience. Still okay with it. Just shut up. Anyway. Um. So yeah, the, the quests were different. The The movie starts much faster, too. Uh -huh. Like, they just kind of started with some action scenes. They did, well, they did have a really cool opening sequence where they kind of do a tour through parts of the oasis to give you a sense of just how big this place is. That was really cool, and I could watch that all day. Um, I think my favorite line from the movie when you're just talking through, like iterating through the things you can do in the <laughs> Oasis, and that was, yeah, you can climb Mount Everest with Batman. And it just has, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, the, but then they just kind of like they get into an action scene pretty quickly, and they 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 differ from the book a lot. Where in the book, Wade is like broke and stuck on one planet and can't really participate in how awesome the Oasis is. In the movie, he's kind of already doing whatever he wants without seeming to have, like he's he's strapped for cash, but that's because he sucks at the game, apparently, not because he doesn't <laughs> have cash. Um, yeah, it just, I don't know. I, I Part of the thing I liked about the book was seeing somebody go from like, you know, stuck in this situation without any resources to like slowly gathering resources or because of where he's stuck, he had the unique opportunity to find this thing. Cause everybody else was looking everywhere else. Things mm -hmm. like that. Like it was less interesting than, you know, just instead they jumped in a big car race and had a, you know, a very cool looking car race, but yeah. not as sticky. That actually touches upon one of my larger concerns with it is it has to do with the way they simplified the Oasis into just being a gigantic game. Yeah. Like it, was a, it was a gigantic game with a lot of things you could do, but it's just a gigantic game, which means we can't have him going to school in the Oasis. That's, that's not going to work. It's not a place for work. It's not a place where people go to their jobs well, in they, the Oasis. No, they, they didn't cut that out. They, they didn't say it's not that stuff. They just didn't spend any time touching on it. Like, they did reference Planet Ludus in passing, but they never showed it or went to it. And they did show, like, people working and stuff. But it, it was never just a big part of the theme. Where did they show anybody 
aside from the IOI slaves doing something that wasn't for enjoyment or competition. I'd have to see it again and think, but I remember okay. seeing probably in that fly through, just seeing all different types of stuff. Okay. I think that's when they were kind of iterating what the Oasis was for, but it was where people live their life. So, but it, it came off as part video game, part social media. It didn't really come off as the alternate internet, which is kind of what it was in the book. Right. And, and the reality that's better than reality. Yeah. But it was like where you could spend just about all your time. Um, so when it's almost exclusively a game, then it makes the whole thing look like an escape. Mm. Which allowed them to do... So A, they could skip all the school stuff. They could skip any of the boring moments. Because the entire thing was engineered for fun in one way or another. Um, but the boring moments were part of the motivation. Um, it allows for the moral that they came up with at the tail end of, you should unplug more. Yeah. Um, as though the relationships that Z forms with his friends aren't really real relationships. Which, in the end, to me, feels like a message of a 60-year-old person telling 40-year-old people how they should feel about 20-year-old people. <laughs> I'm like, no, those yeah. are real relationships. They're different than the ones that you grew up with. But you spent this entire movie establishing these, this dedicated friendship between people who had never, ever met. And then at the tail end go, yeah, but that doesn't really matter. Like, you should totally unplug. Yeah, that was kind of... Unplugging, if you live in the stacks, sucks. Yeah. It's almost like that 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 last scene or whatever. Like, we're going to close the Oasis on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like, that got put in by some, like, committee of concerned parents or something. <sighs> yeah, I, I... That was probably my biggest thing, but it's all kind of tied up in this, well, it's just a game, which means it doesn't really matter, which means it's just an escape... Which means that you shouldn't really be spending time there. And if it's all just a waste of time, then those relationships can't be like real. It's, it's not a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as it's that, then we can shut it down on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Because you can't shut down schools and e-commerce on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Which makes me think that they had the idea way earlier. Because it looped all the way back to the beginning and helped them simplify the entire thing. Yeah. And then leaves the question... What the heck were the people doing in the IOI VR pods? Gold farming? Like when they weren't laying mines at the last battle, this was a business model that the company had. In the book, he's doing tech support. Yeah. Which would be fine, but we never really talk about what these people do. The only thing we ever see that they do, as far as the movie is concerned, is dig holes for explosives. Yeah. It, it, in the final battle. In, in the book, he was lucky to do tech support. Like, he forwarded his identity to get a tech support job, but most of the indentureds got menial, like, manual labor jobs, I thought. Yeah. Like, something outside of the Oasis. But, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of silly. They were they were using, like, forced avatar labor. So like, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> we're in VR. Just, like, script where you want the game objects to appear. Why are you making people carry them around? <laughs> Like doing manual spawning. Well, and honestly, why can I only carry one at a time? Yeah. They're... Like, they don't actually weigh anything to my physical body. So, yeah. like, like, there's there's some weird stuff going on in the, in the simulation here, and I'm not 
fully understanding what's going on. Yeah, that was a bit silly. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to complain about it. There's a lot to like about it. I, overall, I think it's a good movie. I think it'll be interesting to see what how people react to it. It's something that, I don't know. The internet has a tendency to like like or hate something, and people who like something originally tend to like change their opinion and go back on that. I've seen that in a number of different cases over the years, and I always just kind of cringe at that. If I like something, I just tend to like it. I don't, I, I don't try to overanalyze it and try to make my opinion go with the herd. Yeah. Um, if everybody else doesn't like it, then it just becomes one of my guilty pleasure movies. Yeah, It's the movie that I like in the privacy of my own home, and I don't really talk about all that much in public but yeah like i've seen biodome like 30 times like it's just there's no there's no way around it it's not even close to the number of times i've seen independence day yeah uh, I, I it's been a while but yeah that was one of the only cassettes i had in the 90s and i've seen that many many times um tied up in that it's just a game thing was or, or at least vaguely related to it is they decided to make Halliday a genius who was pretty dotty. Yeah. And this works because he didn't really change the world. He just made the best game ever. But if these guy is actually a revolutionary that changes the entire structure of the entire world, that just becomes rich. But changes the way everybody lives, works, breathes, and learns. You can't make him a moron. Um, he was pretty likable, though. Oh, it, it, very likable. It's it, like I was okay with it in the movie, but it, it keys into that. If you are brilliant, there's got to be something wrong with you. Thing. Yeah. And yes, Halliday had issues. That was in there in the original story, but not those issues. You know, there's a difference between having a difficulty connecting with other human beings and being completely spaced out at all moments. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was that was that. Um, one of the things that I loved about it is that for the most part, it doesn't call out its references. It doesn't go. Ooh, look over there. We put in a Master Chief from Halo. They're there, but it's a half a second during a charge as you're showing all these things that are charging. It's just dink and moving on. Um, you know, there's nobody going, ooh, hey, that was the thumb raise from T2. If you yeah. don't get the reference, you don't get the reference. But it doesn't hurt anything. It just moves on. There's a couple of exceptions, like Chucky. Oh, God, it's Chucky. <laughs> but it was freaking funny. So, like, I don't know I don't know how somebody throws a rampaging Chucky into your lap and you don't go, oh, thump, it's Chucky. Yeah. Sorry for the language. Um, <laughs> it's just, like, I get it. But for the most part, they're not calling that out. One of the things that the um, ILM guy mentioned was that the semi that Artemis power slides under during the initial opening race scene, she's on the motorcycle, power slides under this semi that pulls across their path. That semi is apparently a model of the Pork Chop Express from Big Trouble in Little China. Hmm. They don't call it out. 
they don't make a reference. There might be a sign somewhere on the side of the thing that'll give you some information, but it flies by so fast that I'm like, ooh, look, it's the thing from the thing. No. Like, apparently during that race, somewhere along the way is a billboard that has the OCP logo from RoboCop. If you don't see it, you don't see it. The yeah. camera is not going to linger over these things. They threw a thousand references into it, and the ones you catch, you catch. Which I actually have a lot of respect for. I don't... It's like a, a comedian who explains their jokes. I don't yeah. want somebody to, like, think... Think, you know, like, product placement. This was not about product placement, which I just... I, I really, really liked. Um, I also like the fact that they showed getting into VR as being time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't, oh, we're going to do the future tech thing where everybody's just got a little button on the side of their head and you tap it and your eyes glaze over and you're in VR. <laughs> like, they could have made it an instantaneous entry because it's Hollywood. They can make it look like anything they want. But they actually show on a number of occasions. People like, okay, let's put the suit on and get the gloves and make sure that the treadmill works and blow dust out of the goggles and okay, I can put this on and check this. And like, it's a process, which I think is helpful for mitigating what people are going to think if they try getting their own VR stuff today. Yeah. Um, it, it helped to reduce at least partially the unreasonable expectation that people would have about their first VR experience. Now they're just going to be disappointed that they can't actually go into the Oasis. <laughs> oh, and then my last one was, uh, I hope the message sinks in that maximizing profit at the expense of user experience is evil. <laughs> yeah, the... <laughs> I, I hope that there's an entire generation that just gets that message from this movie and carries it out to the rest of their lives. If so, I will nominate this movie for one of the top ten movies of all time. If it can get that concept into the heads of the youth of today. Yes, maybe but... the 40-year-olds. At the same time, the, the the bad guys in this movie were hilariously bad. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they weren't realistically bad. Their motives weren't realistic. Like, having the motive of, like, at one, one point... The evil genius says in, something in passing, like during a board meeting, like I think we can, we can cram up to eighty percent of the users' field of vision with advertisements before they have seizures. Like, right? Like that was a funny line, but <laughs> what company is going to do that? Yeah, yeah. So, I like, mean, the, their so, motives were just like, like caricatures of evil. It was just kind of yeah. silly. So they didn't hit you over the head with the references, but they kept beating you upside the face. With, no, 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 the bad guys are the bad guys. Yeah. Like, there's nothing redeeming about what they want to do. Nothing whatsoever. They're just evil. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I also, I did chat with a friend who took her kid to see the movie. He's about 16. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't seen The Shining. Like, didn't even know that it was really a movie. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting there kind of going... Who are the little girls? What is, what does all of this mean? And like, why is the screen look all grainy and weird? Like, everything looks funny, which I give them points for. But if they do a reference that big, you're gonna lose something if you don't have the context for it. Yeah, I have never seen The Shining, mm -hmm. but you I recognize the 
visual elements. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think for the most part I like it. Like it's something that I wouldn't mind seeing again, but it's it didn't quite live up to the expectation of like well, I guess it's too early to see. It it'll be interesting to see if it makes people go out and buy VR headsets because that's, yeah. that's really what I was hoping from this movie. And if that happens, great. If I don't think it set expectations too high. Um I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like you mentioned, it's kind of a pain to get in VR. You have to have a lot of equipment and put it all on and stuff like that. So, yeah. I don't know. It, it, it might cause people to get fewer of the, oh, I'm just going to buy this $10 VR headset that my phone snaps into at Kinko's. And that'll be VR. Yeah. Because they're just going to have this impression that there's stuff missing. Yeah, I keep seeing those around, and I almost wish I had a way to ban them. <laughs> if you have a pallet of $10 VR headsets, that that's not a thing. <laughs> I actually own one of those. Even at and Micro I... Center. I was at Micro Center like three weeks ago, and they uh-huh. had an entire like floor display pallet of not one, but like six different kinds of really crappy... VR yeah. headsets of like none of these support any particular platform. Like, you, mm-hmm. what what are these for? It's like no, I'm I'm gonna snap my phone into this, but it doesn't come with any kind of remote. So you have to take the thing off your head and then disassemble it to move to another experience. Or some of them come and, with a remote, but you have to support <clears> it in app. And like people aren't doing that. People are making Gear VR apps and Daydream apps. They're not yeah. looking for your obscure remote SDK. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So regardless of my complaints, I had a lot of fun. Like it was, it was fun. It, it's more bubble gum than anything else. Mm-hmm. I'll probably buy it when it comes out on video, mm-hmm. so that I can sit there and like pick through frame by frame. Yeah. Try and find a bunch of cool references and and things like that. Slow things down so I can catch some of the pieces that I was missing. I want to look in the background in HD of some of those battle scenes at the tail end. Or the walking through the crowds. I'm sure the whole movie is full of Easter eggs of its own. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to find those. Yeah. So they're going to get another $30 worth of my money. It's just the way it's going to happen. Yeah. And that's okay. I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. Cool. Well, I think we've rambled on enough about it. So, yeah. Decent movie. It was fun. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. Thanks for listening. 